Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings, listeners. We are back for another episode of Cycling in Alignment. I'm so grateful that you have joined me and my guest today, Jessie Stensland, returns. She's back from Milwaukee and in town, so we got to sit down and have a chat in person. And we chatted. She and I have a lot to talk about. We were speaking for over three hours in the end. Shanna had a lot of work to chop it down into a reasonable length. And so some of our conversation is a tiny bit condensed. But never fear, there are tons of nuggets in there. Wisdom nuggets that Jesse brings us. In the beginning, we're a bit more philosophical. And towards the end, we get a bit more practical in terms of movement. We start talking about the limitations of movement in cyclists and some of the ideas we have to get around that. So I'm going to cut you free to enjoy our conversation and bask in the energy that is Jesse Stensland. That said, one quick bit, one quick note. At one point, we talk about the definition of love and Jesse's own term, interactive. And I thought it was really fascinating that Jesse came up with a definition for her word, interactive, that was quite parallel to Paul's definition of love. And on the spot, I attempted to recite Paul's definition for love, and I was pretty close. But just to clarify, Paul Chek's definition of love is as follows. I define love as the flow of energy and information through empathic and or compassionate connection to self and or other. That is Paul's definition he's come up with over the years of all his medicine work and deep internal reflection and meditation. He also has a definition of love as consciousness becoming aware of itself. So as you get further into the episode and hear Jesse's definition of interactive and her explanation of how she created this word to describe different things that she felt needed to be described, there was no word for the things she's trying to convey, then you'll see where we're going with this. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Without further prognostication or beating about the bush, please enjoy Jesse Stenson. Hi, Jesse. Welcome. Hey, Colby. Good morning. <laughs> so good to have you here. It's lovely to be in studio. I'm back in Boulder. Right? Yeah. Our connection is going to be much better this time. Wow. That was a struggle. And <laughs> The last time we spoke to Jesse, she was in Awaka, and the internet, as remarkable as it is, was giving us a little couple elbows here and there. And Oh, I always did my best, and yeah, but this <laughs> yeah. is way better. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, but we're missing the board noises. The bird noises and the dogs and, and the, the chickens. Dogs. Yes. Oh, you're killing me, <laughs> bringing me back. Yeah. We have oh, chickens in our neighborhood now. Yeah, I've walked around. I've seen, oh. I didn't see maybe yours or your more, area. More common. The birds. Yeah. He, I was noticing more. Actually, Oaxaca helped me notice birds more. So even on, on Sunitas this morning, mm-hmm. a magpie, if you know what that looks like, the big long tailed and it mm-hmm. was black and white, but I had never seen it. And a woman passed by and I said, do you know what that is? Like, oh. 
amazed. And she said, it's a magpie. It's very normal here. And I was like, wow, but I've been up and down Sanitas over the past 10 years and I just wouldn't have noticed. And hmm. thanks to Oaxaca, you know, or maybe my progressing years where I actually notice birds a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was beautiful to see. So, But Jesse, tell us a little bit about just paint, our, paint a picture. Who are you? Where'd you come from? What's your study? I was a swimmer, born and raised a swimmer as well. A very active family. Went to school at Washington in Washington, D.C. at George Washington University, was a Division I college swimmer four years. Uh, overlapped that with my first triathlon. So my degree also, I guess that's important too, uh, was in exercise science. So pre-physical therapy, you would say I love the body. And I immediately was working in personal training and and also in different therapy settings to get experience. Uh, yes, I said I overlapped that with my first triathlon. So that made me look westward to San Diego back in 1998, that was, and uh, head that way to well, for a lot of reasons, the nature, the, the feeling I had a little different than the East Coast that I had ever felt when I visited, say, California, San Diego. And plus the triathlon community out there immediately like enveloped me in my first triathlon camp in 98. Uh, with the pros, there were, you know, there was only handfuls back then. Uh, it's a long time ago now and San Diego was the place. So that just wide-eyed, my opened my eyes and I moved, I couldn't help but move out there. So at 21 years old, I'm out in San Diego. Um, working, you know, not a professional triathlete right away, but within the within the year, uh, was racing against the best, wanted more competition, turned professional. So by 2000, I was racing professionally, not just locally. I guess I did jump on the bandwagon pretty quickly. And I was working, I was working for the rock and roll marathons. So that also had begun. So I just my background in sports marketing, management, race management, also what became being, being able to be my own agent uh, in that way because I was seeing, uh, throw this in there, whether it's relevant or not, but I was basically seeing a, a running race as the connector between the businesses who wanted to reach the audience and the the runners themselves. So as an athlete, I was kind of like the same as a race. I needed sponsors. They wanted to reach uh, the athletes I was reaching as a professional athlete. So that really helped um, a little bit of my background, but get my my career supported because I got smarter and smarter from how the rock and roll marathons really created their business plan. Um, I'm still a very authentic athlete, but just a little bit of background really, really helped. So they were super supportive as well of my triathlon from the beginnings and um, always have great memories of working for them for quite a few years with that team, which let me also, again, be the athlete that I was, put my professional triathlon training first and racing. And that's not, I can't discount that. So after that, let's see, what else have I done? I got onto, into the mountains. So I, I was, I did, okay, I'll go back 2004 Olympic trials. Mm-hmm. So I did get to that level. Um, and it was amazing. And that kind of relates to all the movement things we've talked about that I've learned since because I, because I had that nugget that carried out in front, it really did, um, make me seek out every possible opportunity to be my absolute best. And I do think that journey gave that to me uh, as far as triathlon could give it to me. Um, so triathlon gave me a whole lot and was the the factor that made me seek and seek and seek what it really means to do well in human performance, which I have, you know, how many years later is it now to almost 20 years later, have a whole nother aspect, you know, including nature uh, that that means to me, what I consider human performance to, to bridge those two, but I love having the background in super, super severe professional sport as well um, to go back to and understand. 
And once that was, uh, once I wanted another challenge, I ended up in the mountains just to fast forward. So the mountains, mountain, um, mountain biking, Xterra triathlons, and why that's important is because it got me closer to nature. I didn't realize how far I was from nature, sticking my head in the pool, you know, riding my road cycle on, on concrete, my road bike on concrete, you know. Sure, we were out in the outdoors, but wow, the first time I hit a trail to just see what this Xterra thing was about, I rolled an ankle on the first four miles. Um, I still finished the, the half marathon, you know, but the moment I crossed the finish line, I couldn't walk. The next day, my core was was so sore, but it was because, right, running, t- making twists and turns on that, 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 that run. I remember it because your whole body, you know, you have to tweak it to like quickly go another direction. So that was all new for me. Not only that, like, wow, I didn't blame anybody else but myself for not having the quickness to not have gotten that injury because I couldn't react quick enough or didn't know where to put my foot because my brain had never had to think that way. Speaking of cycling, this is a cycling podcast. Mountain bike rides across South Africa and Namibia, so six-day mountain bike stage races, one of the first that went from Vintuk to Swakopmund in Namibia back in 2012 and 2000. cool. Yeah, 15, Joburg to Sea, which was the nine-day, 900 kilometers on the mountain bike. I didn't know you'd done those. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, were you... Not Cape Epic. That was a little too epic for me. <laughs> but um, but the others were amazing. So were you on a team or uh, it, it solo? It was a team. No, yeah, team of two. Okay. Yeah, both okay. times. I say that because I kept, you know, I kept being around people super competitive and this and that. I could always hop hop in. I was always strong enough because my lifestyle just kept me having fun, being strong. And you're like, okay, so really my training for that 900 uh, kilometer race, which was, I was on the bike six to eight hours a day. I mean, this wasn't, I can't imagine there was any less because I wasn't racing, racing it. Let's just be clear. By that time, I was really just out there having fun, eating whatever they wanted to feed me at the aid stations, which was a whole big party every aid station. You know, you can imagine (laughs) South Africa, the brides, the beers, the I don't know, everything else. Uh, I've developed, I've worked for Vibram Five Fingers, developed some of that got into feet and developing some footwear and uh, was flying all over the world for that, which is a little crazy because mostly, as you know, I just got back from a year in Oaxaca then where I've been living very simply. Well, people talk about working with plant medicine all the time and ostensibly the idea is to deconstruct the ego and to visit the void and, and forget who you are, forget that you're human. And it sounds like in a, maybe in a way, maybe you can speak to this or or you'll agree or disagree perhaps or, or add to it, but when you go and live in, you know, the bush of Mexico for five months and you learn how to fish with a line and build a fire and sleep outside and be dependent upon yourself and humans instead of all the social constructs that we have here, all the Whole Foods and Teslas and and things. And I'm not I'm not bagging any of those things, but it sounds like what you've done is deconstruct your your reality, all the things that you've been conditioned to live in and amongst for your whole life and you've taken all those away and reduced and now you can come back and and understand more about the goldfish tank we live in here i'm well aware of the say the privilege or the opportunity i had to do the travels i had to add up to what even you know took a while took as you know many many years of just it doesn't all come at once but it does take an initial something an initial step an initial you know uh, 
something to get you to the next step, the next step. And so, like I said, it, it doesn't all come flooding at once. You know, it's not for everyone. I, I'll also say that I was, I was the lone person riding the bike only two or three kilometers away from the beach and the touristed area, you know, uh, where the lights ended. And even the locals were saying, Are you, aren't you scared? The people are saying, what? You do that every night? What? A 20-minute bike ride to absolute quiet and mm. darkness every night, of course. And then still to have the the ability to jump back in with everybody in the, in the beach anytime I wanted. Um, so what was I saying? It's not for everyone in that way. And yeah, and it didn't come all at once. I mean, but the question is, if it is for you, if you are curious or, or even taking those small steps to get there, so many things where we do it just because we just it's always been done and we yeah. haven't had to think twice. Have you thought once about not sleeping in a bed? I can't tell you I did until a few years ago. Right. And now it's so obvious to me, you know, that's one example. But yeah, I, I'm also shedding and shedding um, things mm. like that. When you say we, everything's a choice, you know, coming from a place where there are no choices, you know, it's, there's fewer choices, right? Whatever's growing is what you're eating. Mm. Whatever is around is what you have. You live, some people live within only a block their whole life, basically, right? And so why is that important? Oh, and then I was, for example, to bring it to reality here, um, just the awareness, I think, how much healthier we would be if we just were aware that just having that choice. And then you can choose to make that choice, as you know, a more difficult one um, mm -hmm. or, or otherwise, like walking up Sunitas today, I took my shoes off when it got a little warmer on the way back down. And same thing, like I can choose to step around and almost flat smooth spots the whole time. But if I want to do a straight line, if there's a huge boulder and I got to make, take a huge step up, mm -hmm. get my hip mobility, my strength, get into almost that like uh, pistol squat stance before I step back up, things like this, like just walk straight, don't always walk around. What if that was the only way? Mm. And we have the ability, I mean, the privilege here to, you know, to see that we, the choice is just that alone is a thing that we can be appreciative of and not be overwhelmed by. Because what I'm seeing now, having gotten off social media and all this information overload, is that we're almost swimming, we're swimming in so much information and so many choices yeah. that we don't even see that we have these choices because they're overwhelming versus, you know, I've got a couple choices. Like you give a kid two choices, keep it simple. Mm. We have so many. So going back to this idea of what do we make that choice? Well, I can make the choice to go outside being a little cooler, you know, less without my jacket, be cold for a second, let my body adapt, take that little moment of um, uncomfort, which I have learned is good for me, you know. We grow up in society with certain constructs and expected behaviors, and that's just the, the water we're swimming in is goldfish. And then when we reduce that down to bare essentials, then we can go back and add in, critically examine each of the behaviors, each of the things that we partake in. Whatever it is, pick a, pick a construct. I mean, it can be driving. It can be applying makeup. It can be using deodorant or not. It can be there are a thousand choices we make in any day that are just kind of hardwired into us. And when we really are free to critically examine all these behaviors, I, I think it's so interesting because I've had this conversation with so many clients and in my observation, generally speaking, people tend to sort of clamp down rigidly, very rigidly on some of these discussions or these ideas of letting go or alternatively, they're just ready to move on. They're ready. It's like, oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Okay, let's try it without or let's try changing to a different, make a different choice, make a different selection instead of driving here and paying for a ticket 
to go to the ski trail. I'm going to choose to do a different activity today. Mm. And then that eliminates gas and ticket price and cost and transportation time and all the equipment I have to own for skiing, blah, blah, blah. And all those choices. What color hat do I wear when I go cross-country skiing? All those little things that we decide. And those are trivial things, but decisions come at a price, especially when, as you mentioned, we're overburdened or exposed to so many choices, so many choices. And then we add, I think one of the most negative consequences of social media is that it adds weight to those choices. It adds perceived judgment because we tend to look into the world of Twitter or Graham or whatever. And we, we have this imagination that we are actors on a studio, that we're actors on a stage and that everyone's watching our lives. And to a degree, that's kind of true in a fabricated way in Instagram or Twitter because you're there posting pictures about your life and you're having these experiences. And then other people see those experiences and there becomes this mirroring effect. How do they see me? You know, how do I look in that photo? Do I look, you know, flabby or wrinkly or not tan or too tan or, you know, whatever? Is the angle funnier? Is my nose look weird? Or, or what, it, what am I doing? Am I doing some super cool elusive thing? Or am I you know, walking down a street or doing something boring or do mm-hmm. I look sad? And all the other infinite value judgments that we can imagine other people assign to our little digital experiences. And that becomes a hallway of mirrors, right? And that's what social media is. It's a hallway of mirrors. So you go searching for certain things, you'll definitely find them no matter how dark they are. So yeah, I've, I've started to play social media less. I, I think there's, I can see both sides of it for sure. There are certain aspects I just do not, do not fly zones, don't care at all, just completely ignore it. I also don't watch a lot of news for the same reason. There's a balance. I also do want to know, you know, that Biden was sworn in as president. That's useful information. I'm not saying I don't want to know what's going on. I understand perspectives when it comes to social media. I divorced and have gotten off of all of it after being one of the I was at the heyday of my career when this all came about. So I was on it since 2006 or whatever. I think Facebook was 2007. So, I mean, how many years now is that? So 14, 15 years of at every stoplight when I was, I remembered years and years ago now, right? Every stoplight, if there was a moment you're touch, touch, touching the screen and I'm so far from that now. And it got to the point where it was clearer to see that I, and I did it step by step, but this year I completely I got off, right? So I'm just giving somebody out there, I know it's not for everyone to hear, but like they say, it might be for somebody to hear that it is totally possible and that your life gets filled only with rich things otherwise. Not to say that if you need, yeah, you still need to be connected if you're not otherwise connected to anything and then you can start seeing it for what it is. But I would rather, again, add that back in for the moment, right? Then then be inundated. So the more I was off that type of communication, I had to find ways to communicate which has led to more in-depth emails, um, calls than I ever had. I, I don't even use, uh, I'm now on, not on WhatsApp <laughs> anymore. I do have iMessage a little bit still, but I still need most people other than my immediate, immediate people. I'm on emails, longer emails or phone calls. And so you fill it with other ways when you don't rely on a third party to be involved in your life. And I feel like all of those ways have a third party involved in your life, right? Yes. Instead of a phone call to a person, an yeah. email to a person, no one's involved. So 
I didn't think of it until I just mm-hmm. said it that way, but that's how it started no. me on my journey. But that's, I'm seven years into that journey when I got out of other things that were a third party in my life that I don't need anymore. That's a very simple way to look at it because as soon as there's a third party that is interpreting or facilitating your communication, inherently that third party will have an agenda. Mm-hmm. And that agenda is almost always making money for their shareholders. So the critical question is, okay, do I want to use this third party to communicate in some way? And if so, I have to accept their terms. And then that has immediate and far-reaching implications. Yeah, I will say if I relate it back to 2012, I I gave away or sold everything, saved for my two bikes, my computer, camera, and a backpack, and, and went off to see the world. And that was a, the more I gave stuff away, the less I had that was coming from years of sponsorship and, and how many pairs of these kinds of shorts do I need? I realized now I need one, not 10. They're taking up space. I have to pay for that space. So it was easy, but it wasn't uh, a one decision. It just over three or four months, you know, became like, wow, that's right. Well, why would I need these? Or I can digitize my photos. I don't need to lug them everywhere. And mm. little by little, well, this, this year, the digital call it, to use the term digital detox, I didn't have any idea of where it would lead. I just knew I for certain reasons, this and then that. And the more I did it, the more I did it. And wow, I never had to look back. It wasn't like one day after I was like, where's Facebook, you know? But I do, <laughs> I just wanted to relate it back to um, that that physicalness of my physical things, you know, of getting mm-hmm. rid of those, getting rid of this because it's in my face. It's mm-hmm. taking up space. If I'm seeing it, I'm not seeing something else. If I don't need to yeah. see it, how many things do you see every day that weren't of use? You know, and, and when you start to look at it that way, oh, it's no big deal. Another picture of my friend with his dog. I I love my friend. I love his dog. But wow, I still spent a minuscule amount of time seeing that in my life. What else do I want in? And I have to say my life has gotten so much richer knowing I'm missing a few things. I'm definitely missing a few things. But I really do believe it's not, at least right now in my life, it's nothing compared to what I, I'm capable of filling it with. And that's very simple. It's not a lot. But what I'm capable of filling it with or have to have to fill it with, have to figure out a way. In other words, I'm not just sitting here twiddling my thumbs waiting for someone to it for me, what do I want to do? Call another person. Who was on that list that I haven't talked to in a while? What thing do I want to create? What thing do I want to search for right now on the internet? Because it's amazing, right? Even like my interactive theory um, and, and word, which I don't know if we ever talked about, it just gives you that lens to look at every moment of life. And every moment of life, no one, no, not important than another. Like whether you're sleeping, whether you're eating something, whether you're looking at someone in the eye, wherever you are, whether you're scrolling at that moment to really say in this moment, how, I don't know if we've talked about it, but how interactive am I being? How it's another word, but you can Tell kind of me. maybe context. What's interactive? You know, people have a lot of labels and I don't mind words. Words are beautiful, right? But when, when a words lose their original definition or value or get like uh, one guy would say kidnapped and you can't use them anymore. You know, one that's close to my heart is barefoot, right? Mm-hmm. The first time a person had to ask me truly, truly ask me intellectually, what does the word, what does barefoot mean to you, Jesse? In terms of shoes are now being called, you know, barefoot shoes. What does that even mean? It means nothing's on your foot. So then, yeah, so they kidnapped the word. It can't be used. When people ask me, oh, you you run barefoot? I said, just to give you, keep Mm -hmm. going with the story, but do you Mm -hmm. run barefoot? And I said, no, I run. You run in shoes. Yes. I want to go back to like, yeah, these descriptive have all come from consumerism, right? Mm -hmm. Um, No, I'm just running. Like, let's, let's not put a label on that. 
And so interactive, yes. So when people started to see me jumping around on things, they'd ask me, oh, what are you doing? Is that CrossFit? Is that parkour? Is that every time yoga? Mm. No, 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 I don't know. Or yes, that's that's inspired by parkour. Or um, mm. or are you vegetarian? Are you vegan? When I order hummus, you know, oh, are you vegetarian? I just ordered hummus. I had, <laughs> this is way back when the first days. But uh so I needed a word. And I kept seeing all the ways we're insulated by nature, um, insulated from nature rather. So, right. So I shoes and clothing and, and, and indoors and, and all the things. And gosh, it got a little heavy. And I said, no, you need a positive spin to that. So I, instead of being insulated, what's the, what's the positive side of, of that? Meaning what do we want to be inter, uh, interactive? We want to interact with mm-hmm. nature. We want to be interactive. And, and I said immediately, yeah, this word interact, uh, it hasn't been kidnapped. It's still, it means a two-way flow of energy or information, right? We're interacting. And so, and yeah, it's a strong word. I, I liked it right away. And then I said, okay, I need, at the time I would have said I need movement in nature in that word. So how do I get that in that word? Um, kin, the K came up pretty quickly for kinesis, which turned into um, kindred for care and compassion. Kin as in family, community. Uh, there was one other K-I-N word, kindred. Um, it had quite a few, community, care and compassion, uh, movement, there was one other good one in there. So it meant mm-hmm. a lot to me. And then I said, okay, how's uh, nature getting in this word? And there's an extra R for Terra, T-E-R-R-A. Simple as that. Mm. Yeah, and so it's interacted with two R's. And um, and then it became, you know, a word I needed when people said, what are you doing? So 4 a.m. at a bus stop, I'm doing handstands. You know, someone asks me, what am I doing? Or, And at first, you know, I had to come up with, you know, I'm interacting. No, I'm being interactive. Like I was m- messing around with this. Um, what it turned into was this idea of saying, if you have a lens and a working definition of people, places, things, ideas, or actions, basically everything, that allows for or what to what degree it allows for the constant and ever-changing flow of energy, which is information, but let's go energy, within nature because mm. we are nature. So if I had to say within and between mother nature and human nature, that means there's humans and there's mother nature. No, we're, we're nature. One thing that came to me right away is, I mean, your definition of, of Kinter Active is so fascinating to me because I'll riff this from memory, but I've heard Paul Check say many times his definition of love, mm. which is the flow of energy and information between compassionate and connected connection through connection with others. I butchered it a little bit, but those are the key aspects. And he used the same words, mm-hmm. energy and information. Mm-hmm. So the second you said that, I was like, wow, that's pretty powerful because mm-hmm. this is a definition Paul has come up with on his own through years of meditation, yeah. his definition of love. It's the, let me try and get it right. It's the flow of, this is my Paul check <laughs> exam right here. He's going to flunk me out of the academy if I can't say this on the podcast. <laughs> Not that Paul listens to my pods, but- it's the flow of energy and information between compassionate connection between self and or other. I still mm-hmm. butchered it a little bit, but that's the basic concept. And so that is pretty potent to me. Yeah. And I suppose that what you're saying is that any interactive moment or activity could ultimately be reduced to love. Mm-hmm. Maybe you disagree. It's your word, mm-hmm. but I mean, what else is there? I, I, it's, I'd go there. Let's go there. Um, so a few years ago, I, I knew I love it because it's it's similar. And so I want your opinion on this too, or anyone listening. Um, when I was trying to make a, what would you call it, a mind map or so of what's important, what 
what's at the core of everything, what comes out from there. You know, a, a smile is not insignificant walking down the street, but is it the first thing that leads to the biggest thing or is it the, is there a big thing that leads to the smile? That So basically it was a bunch of circles with a bunch of words, learning, teaching, nature, love, smile, um, communication. You know what I mean? And where did they fall in terms of at the core of, of life or and, and out? And what I... What ended up for us, my friend was working on it, nature and love were at in the middle. And all these other things went out to big things, you know, teaching, learning, love, uh, love was a part of it. Um, all the way out to the little things you could do, eye contact, smile. And I think it can go both ways. Mm -hmm. So this will get back to my the point we were talking about. But, you know, smile can lead to, you know, get someone closer to this core, you know, being natural and feeling love versus like, having to start with all these things until you then actually smile. Mm -hmm. So I think you, you can like work from the outside out in the little things to the in or, or obviously have all that nature and love and like, yeah, put it out there and, and go outward. That said, nature and love were in the middle. And to this, to this day, and, and for a while now, I've of course said love wasn't just about a single human relationship I might have. This was about mm -hmm. every single moment of life, you know, for me, love is a quality is an appreciation is a thing that that is because of that. So for me, I'm putting nature at the core from now mm. on. Mm. And love is a beautiful, what would you call it? A, um, a feeling that comes out and from that. What would you say is your purpose for movement? Why do you move, one? And then two, what does your movement practice consist of now? A friend of mine said it really well, a performance coach once said, you know, babies are born with the ability to do every single thing and they have to like learn how to not do every single thing and actually get coordinated mm -hmm. where we have like, right. Once you're conditioned and then want a new, a new skill, right. Have to get that coordination. It's quite the opposite. But if we think back to what we're born with and what, and start there and, and then start to, well, in our context of seeing where the world starts to funnel us into certain movement patterns early on, sit up straight, sit in your chair, sit, 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 and get squished into this car seat. Wow. I mean, we have this body that truly can do everything. Um, and every joint has a range of motion that it was born with. I mean, let's just say in the perfect world, in the perfect body, um, almost every joint we know, right? The hip swings all it can be all over the shoulder. We know we have mobile joints and stable joints. And my purpose for a long time has simply been to maintain that one range of motion and, and nervous system access to those ranges of motion. Um, so, and that, you know, I was limited when I learned these things. So I had to get back some ranges of motion. I still do. I'm very conscious about that. Now I at least know how the ankle used to be able to move, how, you know, I was, I started to be limited with all my shoe wearing and my sports, but I'm getting it back and, I'm, and I've seen it come back. And I'm, like I said, of, of how many years on in this game and I can still get movement back. So my movement age is going only down and down, mm. just being true to the fact that I know what it was functioned and designed to do. There's no reason other than me not using it in that range. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. When I started to do high kicks, just like in capoeira or, or whatever martial art I was learning, just a practice of a few kicks high, right? So I got really strained in my hip flexor. Mm -hmm. Well, why? If I ask you that, do you know immediately why I would have been strained in my hip flexor by doing high kicks? Not used to that range of motion with that much force. Right. And yeah. what, what, what muscle gets used over 90 degrees of flexion in the hip is your hip flexor, mm -hmm. right? So here you're doing a high kick, using it at 
120 degrees yeah. and a really high force. And wow, boom, I, I, I could do this. I did a set of them one day and I couldn't do them again for a couple of weeks. I was like, wow, mm. this is great. It's kind of like when I learned about the cartwheel where I was like, I'd rather do cartwheels to open up my left side, which had a harder time with it mm -hmm. because I'm a righty. So one side was harder than the other. I'd rather do that than like, you know, a stretch here, a stretch there, like cartwheels, because they open if you do them well and right and progress through them and actually do them, they really open things up. Mm -hmm. So little by little, just by pro just by being curious about progression and, and one, ex being curious and adding in different, you know, fun, different things, surrounding myself with people doing different things that I've never done. And now realizing, okay, I don't need another example. I just know that, you know, the shoulder moves this way, the hip moves this way. I'm going to wiggle, wiggle, wiggle truly just to be on to honor and be true to what I know of the body. So to, and to keep myself, well, if I could take a line from parkour to be strong, to be useful, that comes in handy right now, actually. Mm -hmm. Right. So one of their mantras is to be strong, to be useful, mm. which I think is different than I've heard before. Right. When you're an individual sport athlete, you want to be strong because you need to get your butt from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. So they were one of the first, you know, there's other uh, groups of people and humans and, and, and philosophies on this, but they definitely drove, drove the point home, be strong to be useful. So I'm, I have been aware of that ever since. And even before I met them, I was, I was that way because, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily talk philosophy when you're crushing it in the mountains and, and, and maybe even mountaineering or my mountain bike sports, you know, whereas in parkour, they had to create an urban setting of like, what is the purpose of us doing this? And so they actually did have to put words to it and the mm. meaning for it. If I was to talk about the body in general and movement, I know that there's a true range of motion that we're born with. We can see it every day in babies that are born. I can now assess a little bit as to where I, I've been limited and where I can start to get some of that back. And uh, no, I'm not going to get it all back because I'm not going to just stop my life and do only movement, but I'm going to get there. I also need to use that range of motion, range of motion that I have everywhere, which means nervous system, which means sensory input, mm -hmm. which it means, you know all the sensory organs, including my hands and my feet and eyes and ears and all of that, being true to that because I need that sensory input to actually connect to the muscles to use those ranges of motion in a relaxed, efficient, and just um, actually just to be used at all and not go away. And mm -hmm. so now I know how and what and why, right? Staring at screens all day is not keeping our eyes at the most, you know, depth perceptive and all the things we need, not touching, not having our hands and our feet touched. We know these things now. Mm -hmm. So I'm being true to my nervous system to keep that just functioning, which means I see different things. I touch different things. I do weird things. I make weird movements. I don't mm. wait for someone, you know, I can, maybe you can hear me through the, <laughs> can, you can hear me through the podcast, the microphone where I can just like, I can just do weird motion. I'll be, you'll find me shaking. Like, look at kids. We mm -hmm. do not think they're weird. They're waiting in a line. They're laying on the ground. They're doing all these things and it just goes by. Mm -hmm. But the genius in that and what we limit and stop when we, when we stop that and it looks weird mm. because it's not accepted Wow, I'm I'm definitely over it. So if you you're not gonna if you see me walking down the street, I don't really care what anyone else thinks, and I'm throwing my arms over my head or wiggling for a second or whatever. Mm. So all of that to say, um, yeah, I want the ranges of motion that are pretty easy to see. It's in a baby every day, yeah, and I want to keep uh, active to do that. So the purpose is to be able to yeah just live life, understanding that, and then for others in whatever way mm. uh, I can. Beautiful. So I think we're in agreement here. I've, I've kind of boiled it down for me. My movement practice is about two things. 
connection with nature and connection with self internally. So I, you could divide it into external and internal, although the truth is since we are nature is really all the same thing, which comes back to nature, but which kind of reinforces your point and your philosophy. But that's what I find, you know, whatever, whatever I'm doing, if I'm running on a trail, I'm feeling the trail, I'm trying to connect with that, the contours of the rocks and thinking about where the foot strikes are and thinking about the rhythm of my run and my breath and my posture and my arm swing and how I'm changing my bounds based on the terrain. I'm, when I'm just riding, it's, you know, I'm not just riding for me, stabbing at the pedals or trying to be autonomous about my or automatic, I guess would be the right word about my, my pedal motion. I'm, I'm consciously engaging the pedals, even though it's repetitive motion, you're doing it thousands of times in a single ride for me, that can be meditative. And, and I just find, and for me, it's an old pattern. Obviously I've been riding bikes for 35 years. So that is a thing. It, it, in a way it feels like home, but I do it in different ways than I used to. There used to be a different ethos yeah, to it. That? Yeah. Well, when you're competing as an athlete, it's mm. always about adding load, you know, more is better, yang, um, preparing for competition. And if you subscribe to that mindset that more is better, that was definitely part of my MO for a long time. I learned those lessons the hard way by falling down and, and you know, metaphorically and crashing my body and, and being smoked in June from training way too much in the early season and all those lessons that we have to learn as part of the warrior phase of our athletic development. And that's all part of the adventure and the journey but then, you know, it evolved from there. And now my practice is, I mean, I may compete from time to time when it fits and when it feels right and feels authentic, but uh, well, COVID aside, uh, there's going to be few opportunities or few, I would say instances where I would expect that to happen, but it might, and it would really be more far less about me. I have nothing to prove to anyone, myself or other people about how fast I am or am not on the bike. I mean, who cares for where, from where I'm at, um, I've already done all those things and unturned all those rocks and been the best that I could be, but that's fine. I still enjoy practicing the sport and that may end up happening in a competitive setting at some points. It may not. It depends on probably some circumstances, some social aspects like are some of my friends racing? Would I get to travel to the race with them? I was just having this conversation with my friend Don the other day and we were talking about doing a mountain bike race later this spring in Colorado and he was like, yeah, we could do this and I always go and he's done it the last few years. I've never done it. This is the Gunnison Crawler. I've never done that race. And, and I was saying to him like, yeah, you know, what's your rhythm? And he was like, well, I go here and I usually drive this night and then I get a hotel. And I was like, what would you be open to camping? Like, why do we, we're not here to win this thing. Like, who cares? Like if we don't get a great night's sleep because it's a little bit windy or we get rained on or whatever, like, I don't really care that much. I'm still going to enjoy the ride the next day. To me, it's just a ride that I paid for with a number plate on and I'll go fast. And he was like, that's a really good idea. I could be down with that. Mm -hmm. So rethinking these things, you know, um, and, and so that changes the bar for me a little bit, but fundamentally my movement practice is all those things. It's connection with the body and feeling that flow state, mm. right? It's not about, there's no, like, I think one of the pervasive mindsets that has trickled into a lot of different endurance communities somehow is the idea is the simple, really old school weightlifting paradigm of 12 reps to failure. And the old, the really old one is like every set you have to go to failure, right? And there's only a very, very narrow range of applicability for that statement. And even then it's an extreme statement by definition. It's very myopic, but if you're trying to build maximum amounts of muscle, if you're a bodybuilder, 
or you're competing in a strength competition, then maybe that can serve you at times. That's, I've studied this a lot, but I'll still say it's out of my area of expertise. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, that mindset pervades everything we do from intervals to endurance rides to riding at the top of any given zone at any given moment. I just spoke about this in the last pod that I think dropped this morning, maybe. So the idea that the type A mentality is always maximizing thing, everything to a degree. So if I ask you, if I was your coach, Jesse, you know, 20 years ago, and I said, I want you to go on a four hour zone two ride. And you went and you said, okay, my zone two heart rate is 126 beats to 134. And you rode along at 133 to 134, the entire ride, thinking you were doing it better mm. and that you were maximizing everything. And and what's the mindset behind that logic? Is it that you think that you're not quite as talented as the other riders in your peer group? So then you have to out train them? Or is it just that you're ticking off that box of perfectionism? Or is it that you're, you know, who knows? So we can unpack, I'm hypothesizing on all these psychological outcomes for our athletes, not you obviously in particular, but so that's the old school mentality of taking that weight training mindset to, and applying it to everything. And I'm so far from that paradigm now, because now for me, connection with self is about feeling, just feeling good and feeling my body proprioceptively, muscularly, feeling the range of motion, like you were saying, feeling, sensing where the limits are on why is my shoulder not as open on one side as the other? What should I be able to do with it? Why can I not get thoracic extension when I do this exercise? What is the deal there? What vertebra is it? And trying to kind of dissect that. And for me, internally, that has its own meaning because I want my body to be this perfect functioning machine as, as optimally as I can. For me, there's almost no greater priority than health in a way. Health and love connection. So... But that said, I... Mm, let's talk real quick about sports because we were talking about sports and then, yeah. yes, my movement practice. But this idea that um, I it could take one sport, running, you know, uh, I don't want to dig too, too myo myopically, but the point is take any sport that you want um, and break it down for what it is, which is in, in, in my sport of triathlon, even swimming and, and running, to be more simple, it's one, I mean, especially on the road in a repetitive motion, right? It is one uh, one, what's the word I'm looking for? One uh, repeated movement repeated pattern, movement pattern over, and over and over and over. Quite limited in, in the case of cycling or running. Right. It running. is what it is. Yeah. Right. It's not limited if you think about walking. It's limited if you think about uh, leaping and bounding and crawling on trees. Like mm -hmm. it's so, but it's, it's one repeated over and over and over. And so once I realized that and I realized what it took to do that, and I'm talking about on asphalt straight ahead, right? Your typical race situation and training, um, it's repeated. So we, we send rocket ships to the moon. You know, we dance. If you start, I got into dance a couple of years ago, I told you, and they move. I mean, they can dance their eyelids. They can dance their eyeballs, some of them. <laughs> like they can, you know, you know, some of those wild dancers, they can, they can connect to every part of their body, move mm -hmm. it in a different way, stop it when they want. It's mm -hmm. inch by inch in their bodies. And here I am in a sport where I just had to do this and well and understand what it took and understand that what changed between me being able to do one hit on the ground, one strike, one, one strike on the ground and running, for example, or one freestyle swimming stroke on one side mm -hmm. to repeating that for 26 miles, two miles, whatever it took, and then somehow running injured me or running too far injured me. Or So I guess what I want to say is what I've learned since is that 
if we're true to what that sport really takes and how to really feed nutritiously, like Katie Bowman will say, nutritious movement, mm. what our health and well-being needs to do that motion and repeat it as long as I want, then no sport necessarily, we can talk cycling too, because that is a, that is a, in some ways a very static position, yes. but how, but, but you know, if you eat, it's maybe we could say it like nutrition in general. If I ate such a diverse diet, all mm. the farm foods, and then I had a box of cookies, mm. maybe even 10 that day would not affect me nearly as much as you know. And I think movement's the exact same way. We, what body, what elasticity, mm. what ranges of motion, what nutritious whole being. I can do whatever you want, but right mm -hmm. now for this five hours, I'm going to choose to sit in this position. And I know it's going to be a little stiff afterwards, but you're going to be less stiff because you actually can use your body in all these other ways. And your mind knows that and your being wants that, right? Mm -hmm. You're free to appreciate the human form in such a way that you know it should be able to wiggle and you should be able to whip your head around like a rock star your whole life. And I'm working on that, by the way. So <laughs> trying to practice what I preach and uh, something I learned from dance. But yeah, my neck mobility, just like whip it around anywhere I want. And, and there's reasons we can get into that. But mm. basically, when you bring a body that you focus first on all of that and then choose to, to use it repetitively for a bit, whether it's in a job. I've been in repetitive situation jobs over my travel times and little stints here and there at where my hand starts to be like, oh, yeah, I'm repeating this motion. Okay, the job is that, but I'm going to do the best I can in and out. So same thing with cycling, same thing with whatever repetitive um, thing you want to think about. So I just did want to say that. You know, it's not every sport that does this to us. If we take responsibility yeah. – and I know that all lifestyles can't allow for it. I know that everyone can't get to this level. It took me a long time to or can get, but maybe isn't there or to get to the point where we're true to that. But I do just want to say it's a privilege to do sport. I, I feel to the level that we do it, as you've pointed out many times, I know, um, you don't have to grow your own food. You do not have to walk to even get your food. You know, it's nothing like that. So th there people are doing that. I just came from Oaxaca where mm -hmm. you don't have time to do extra because your workout is all that extra, the food, getting your food. And we can just push a button and we don't have to, you know, in the microwave or on the computer or whatever. Or so, even Amazon Prime delivering groceries okay, to your house exactly. now. Your meal, steamy yeah, hot. Yeah. So just saying appreciating oh, that we're able to do it, but that's that's part of that. Um, that. That sport necessarily isn't what's the factor. So let's nutritiously, I, I just put it that way. I've had enough people say running, you know, in, injured me or all my running. Wow, I, let's... Let's be true to what I was feeding my body and, yeah, nutritiously and mm -hmm. movement-wise. And um, and I say that pro proactively to those listening to say, like, yeah, what body and what elasticity and what ranges um, are you doing that you can then choose mm. healthfully to say, I love this. I am going for this hour run. I'm going mm -hmm. for this hour ride. I'm going to do this every day. But how true am I going to be? So. That was one point. <laughs> the second point mm -hmm. was my movement practice. And really, let's see. Part of my movement practice is, of course, my these days is my lifestyle uh, choices. So that means that I walk and ride my bicycle everywhere. I didn't have a car. I don't have it here. Boulder's great for that, of course. Um, and that's a big deal. Fresh air. We're talking about all the things in that way. Um, as far as, oh, beds. We've talked about a bed before, which you could say movement practice, but that means sleeping on a hard floor. Like I've told you, you need to be suavecito. You need to be uh, soft and malleable. And your my neck just melts into the ground and I have never had better neck mobility, not mm. from doing all these perfect, like, you know, Edo Portal, mm -hmm. helpful, helpful, you know, pra movement practice. But I don't, 
necessarily have to do these things in the mirror and do these circles and these things because I just don't use a pillow, sleep on the flat ground. And ever since then, I have had a neck I can swing as a rock star in every range of motion. Um, so movement practice, right? We're digging you into what, what I don't have to try to move practice because I don't have crutches or casts or movement um, limiters in my life. Chairs, not a thing. Mm -hmm. I, I, right. I sit and eat and work on the floors. I'm sitting in a chair right now. I'm sitting, like I said, cross-legged. We can move. You allow for that. Yeah. So you can still use the chair as a tool and like move around, but um, not to be a slave to any one position. Mm. Um, as far as kids looking, I, of course, in Oaxaca and when I'm here, I act, I, I relate to the kids. I move like the kids, right. And the adults are sitting around doing nothing. I'm the one running around with them or at least observing mm -hmm. them, you know, um, my nieces, okay. Movement practice. You want to hear? This is funny. Yesterday, my brother and I were on Skype with my nieces and nephews and they were telling us about Disney world. They just got back and Brett and I are sitting there, my brother and sitting there on, and, and in the screen and Anna and Tara, the kids, uh, 10 and 12 were like, moving all over and not running and not obnoxiously, but just like she, one was on a skateboard and she was coming back and forth. And the other was like moving her position all the time. Mm. And I used to think that was like six-year-olds, like a, more, like even more than once they got to be 12. But I'm looking at a 10 and a 12-year-old who are still not sitting still, not for a moment. And so I started to do that. Mm -hmm. So in my screen, my brother was just sitting there. He's a mover too, but in the moment he can sit. Mm -hmm. And I started to like do stuff kind of funnily and to see how it felt for myself. But like, why can't I? Mm -hmm. It was a little bit awkward. Was it distracting? Because then they started to play with it and back and forth. Right. But like, why not me? And why you? Mm. So it's just an observation. It may not always be uh, relevant or apparent, but wow, they moved 110 times and we would have had one position in a right. half hour conversation. Right. Mm. So it's just observations like that. Um, you talk, you're asking about my movement practice. It's hard to package up into a box, right? Mm -hmm. Because of course I could tell you that I, um, I, not just shake, but I learned from a dance uh, drill once that she had us like do one body part at a time where we just really let it f whip off our bodies. So it was one arm at a time or hmm. both arms at a time, just the arms, whip them, whip them around everywhere they can go, right? Mm -hmm. uh, your torso, right? Or your shoulders, just do your shoulders. Can you do your head? And we did it. We whipped our heads around and hmm. I did it. Then, then one leg and then the other leg and then the whole body. Can you imagine what it looks like? A room full of about 20 people, <laughs> just like, and dancers who have crazy mobility and just Flailing. like, yeah. And the video is amazing. And can mm. your body take that? Mm -hmm. Right. Most people see me whip my neck around and I have mm. a video of it. I was, you know, uh, to, to even, it's just, it looks amazing that like a rock star at this age and only because mm. I, I don't do extra exercises because I don't have lim movement limiters in my life. You know, yeah. what is whipping to me? Whipping is that quick, like thing you might, that might happen a fall. Right. 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 And that's something you didn't expect. One is recently I've been studying a guy named Joel Green a little bit. He wrote a book called The Immunity Code. And he talks about a lot of different concepts that I think are really core and are parallel to what we're speaking about. And one of the ideas is he talks about the concept of young muscle. Mm -hmm. And his definition of young muscle is, can you just walk out the door to your front yard or your street or whatever or park no warm-up and just sprint straight up just yeah, yeah. rocket speed like running from a cheetah can you do that without getting injured and that is one of his yardsticks a simple yardstick for having what he calls young muscle and if you're and he goes way beyond movement i mean he talks about mobility and 
and the things you're speaking about for sure. But then he also talks about things like healing the gut and having a diet, which again is a parallel. The perfect analogy you brought up is that nutritious movement. The more stimulus, the more different varieties of healthy movement we put into our diet, then the more when we need to be laser focused and respond and catch that child who's about to fall or or catch that your grandma's vase that's falling off a table or, or whatever, or react to a slip on some ice or sand when you're walking on the street or a car that comes around the corner, any number of examples, then you're capable of having that nervous system strength, but also the range of motion and the muscular coordination and strength all at once. They, they come together in that nanosecond to protect you from falling. Or if you do fall, your core is not so strong from doing hundreds of hours of planks, side planks and, you know, whatever seven way hips, not to bag on those exercises. They have their place, I think, but then your neck is never trained because we don't think about training the neck or the strength of the neck. So if you fall on your shoulder and you manage to not break a collarbone or wrist and your core is really strong from the shoulders down, what's going to happen? You're going to get whiplash to the side when your head just goes, because you aren't you're not doing your rock star head whips. <laughs> and so there, so we have to think about during accident times of an accident or an unforeseen circumstance, what's going to break is going to be the weakest link in the chain. And commonly that is the neck. People don't think about that. Paul T Check teaches that in core exercises, he teaches full spinal flexion and extension when you're doing a core exercise, which means including the neck. And a lot of times when you start doing that, people's necks are by far the weakest part of that, that chain. So, but I think that concept of young muscle is really interesting. And I've been kind of as a thought experiment and also in my own movement practice, thinking about how that applies to me, you know, what could I get up and do a full sprint up my, up my block without injuring myself. And I'm thinking about my own range of of motion limitations that are based on me being a cyclist for 35 years. And I definitely have them. I made a lot of progress, but there's always work to be done. And I've got my own little kinks and bits to work out in my left ankle and, and my left hip and things like that. So if we were to compile a list of what you think would be, the answer might be do everything, jump in waves, you know, mm. push against water. The answer might be you know, sprint up your sidewalk, play with children, practice tumbling and rolling. But if we had to make like a, a handy checklist of maybe 10 things of a litmus test that you could give your athletes that would qualify them to be, we'll say, you know, overall baseline healthy. Would it, would it be a list like some pulling of at least body weight of a certain amount of reps? Would it be a certain, you have to be able to do a cartwheel and a tumble. Mm. Like, how do we, how do we narrow that down? I mean, how this, and mm. maybe the answer isn't something we produce right now on this exact podcast, but this is a concept I've kind of been bouncing around in my head for a while. It's like, I know I can do some things really well. I mean, if you want me to go run up a mountain, I could go do that right now. No problem. And I could do it at a really good clip for two hours if I needed to, but that's because I've got such a, an endurance based cycling background that that would come easily to me. But if you had me do, and I'm not talking about David Goggins, mm -mm. you know, 1400 pull-ups mm -mm. in a 24 hours or something insane. I'm just talking about be strong, be useful. Mm -hmm. Like, can you lift a five gallon water bottle from the floor onto the water cooler without blowing out your back? Can you pick up a small you child? yourself into a boat or a kayak by yourself? Yeah. 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 Can you be upside down and mm. still maintain your bearings and have some sense of 
of awareness and strength to write yourself, right? Can you hold your breath for a certain amount of time? I mean, we can get beyond mm. maybe what we're thinking of as movement. I don't know. Do you have thoughts on? What mindset are you bringing to that you believe in the body, that you know, that you are aware of it a bit and want what's better, want to keep curious and want to, you know, just to enjoy it and do what you know you can today and keep exploring because it, it it will never end in our lifetime mostly because we started off without knowing this information. I mean, most of us, right? It's less of like, oh, shoot, big black X. I can't do all the things I do in life. No, but to be aware. I think so many people hop in their car, not realizing their shoulders are slightly a bit forward, not realizing their one foot turns out a little bit to hit the pedal down, like so many things, like just being aware of all the times in life, you're not just shaking out like a rock star. You know, we're not. We're not being a squiggly little kid. We're not. But it's okay just to just to take a little assessment of it and to really appreciate the additive things then and what they're going to do for you to allow you to do those few repetitive things you're not willing to give up or that you really love to do, right? Which might mean your bed. I don't know. Um, or, your, of course, your cycling or whatever other sports. And your sports shoes you have to wear at this point until we make all the better ones, right? Like I think a really humbling or um, enlightening thing for people to do, and I didn't do that until parkour, was to get myself over a wall. Not only at all, but fluidly, efficiently, and strongly, and, right. not, and coordinatedly, and not looking like, you know. What? A flailing scarecrow. Okay, okay thank you. <laughs> I need Colby sometimes the words. Yeah, exactly, right? And so many like otherwise – you know, strong humans uh, and, and otherwise not realizing that about themselves, self-awareness, you know, that they didn't realize they couldn't. And it's not an easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. Pure strength wise. And then of course the technique itself can be learned a little bit more too, but just pure strength, just save your life, get yourself over a wall. Like even if you can do it, it was hard. It took a while, didn't feel good, want it to be more smooth and fluid. So if I can put a, throw something out there, a pull-up's one thing, a climb yourself up over a wall could be any, any wall you pass by walking down almost any street, you know, um, Don't get at least in our world. No, right. <laughs> Parkour is good at that. Um, upside down, I, more and more, this idea of getting upside down, use a wall if you need to. And that's the, you know, doesn't necessarily need to start on a wall, but like you said, being comfortable, not just something as intricate, kind of intricate, right, as a, as a cartwheel, so many people say, but wow, just even a progression to a cartwheel, right, where your feet stay on the ground, your hands are on the ground, your mm -hmm. butt's over your head, anything. There's, there's no one right or wrong way to do anything anymore. You know, dance, movement, practice, nothing. You can make any movement, but put your hands on the ground, put your butt over your head. Mm. And if you, you know, just put your feet on the wall, walk yourself forward and back and get off the wall. You can do so many things with like stretching your thoracic spine out at that point, you can get so creative just with your hands on the ground and your feet on the feet overhead on the wall or not on the wall. Um, or in, you know, that's crawling is one thing, right? You, you're in that horizontal hands are on the ground, heads down, butts there just to be in a crawling position, get your butt over the head. That's a whole nother story. You got a lot more weight on your hands, right? You got a lot more um, range of motion or weight on your wrists as well. And from there, that's when you put your foot up on two inches, four inches, a, six, a foot, you know, up and up and up. And you have more weight on your hands, more strength. And then you start to actually move with that, walk yourself up and back from a wall or along a wall, right? So if you're upside down facing the wall and you walk yourself left and right, wow, that's super strong. And talk about a range of motion left to right, not just this one push overhead, right? right. One vertical scenario. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I love getting people and that's just, that's wrist, that's hand strength, that's elbow actually extending like they haven't had to. How many people do jumping jacks just like this, right? Mm -hmm. There aren't, their elbows, they don't even realize haven't 
the ability anymore right. to necessarily to get straight or extend easily, mm. you know, or, or fly. Like when you start to do jumping jacks with those arms straight, it's like yeah. starts to be that whipping motion I was talking about. And man, that's people don't realize. They I see don't the same problem with knees a lot with cyclists because yes. we don't, if you're extending your knee all the way at the bottom of the stroke, then your saddle's much too high. But so we're, that's repetitive motion and adaptive muscle shortening, right? You don't reach that hamstring down or that oh knee it doesn't extend at the bottom of the stroke. And then I see people who can't, when I ask them to do a forward bend, they can't do it without a bend in their knees. Yep. And it's, man, that's it's not something. Good. No. <laughs> and it's something new for me actually at the, uh, that was an Edo Portal um, nugget for me, which was in their movement classes, I was for the first time completely straightening that leg. Cause actually in, in my highest level of human performance that I was training and we always were loading cause that was the point, right. Mm-hmm. With my training. So really other than, other than fully extending through plyometrics and jumps, I'm sure I extended my leg, you know, and in running, I would hope so Yeah. at that point still at the speed I was training for and running to this day. Yes, I can. But, um, I didn't think about it until they were doing it more in their practice. And it started to make sense that like, yeah, sure. Not if I'm going to be completely loaded, Right. Or pulling, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do deadlifts with that. That's not the point. I need the whole system from my feet to my, you know, Mm. glutes and up, but, but just to have that range of motion healthfully. And I've started to do that. So if I end up like just anywhere in my day, I've been doing it actually head, head down to stretch out the whole posterior chain. I do it with straight knees now a hundred percent of the time because I can feel it. And when I can feel a little shift in my, and it's not always obvious, like I need to Take a deep breath. I often do let's talk about my movement practice lately. Think about a bobblehead when you if everyone right now could just like think bobblehead. Mm-hmm. You like really have to solve you know, you really have to get in everything. You can feel the difference, right? Can you feel the difference mm-hmm. to everyone out there listening right now? It's like, yeah, you can well try to if you think about it, you could do that with almost like every part of your every, body. You start joint. to feel air. Yeah. Coming through that. Even when I'm walking, I do that sometimes mm. even and in different, you know, breathing is definitely a thing when you do certain movement, you know, definitely some movement, corrective movement patterns or, or isolated movement patterns and being able to breathe through them. Right. That does shift and change a bit of the weight shift and what opens up and what gets able to get longer. So breathing can be a thing there when I'm therefore when I'm down, uh, Oh, in that straight legged position with my head down, just just to stretch and let gravity take it. Like I have to bobblehead things. I have to bobblehead to like, and I, and then it melts even more than my, than I thought it would, but you have to take that little extra moment of awareness. Right. And then I feel, I feel that uh, somewhere my, mm, what's it? My femur, my femur up in my glutes, you know, they move a bit. So when my knees gets, you can imagine my knees get a little straighter, a little more relaxed in that position, even straighter than I originally felt at that when I first got into the position and everything melts, they get a little straighter. And then I feel a little shift up in my glutes. And then guess where I've felt the shift down in my feet and my big toes like um, sink, like pronate almost and get some like where they're supposed to be, like the big toe pointing more in inward and, you know, and mm-hmm. where it should be in that straight ray of a line, straight being like a splayed position, yeah. right? Not just straight out. Yep. So splayed out because it lets, it goes all the way down to the ankle. So again, I'm focused on it behind the knee basically in that stretch, like to really just let that lengthen right there. Then I feel it get, it shift the femoral head in my, in my glutes. 
And then if I, if I, I, but I have to use my mind, I have to say relax and relax mm -hmm. almost like in a meditation that I've had before where he had us like relax, tighten and relax every body part, right? If you're good at it, then my ankle, because my ankle is holding me stable up where my hip wants, but my foot then at the mid, mid foot can sink in a little more inward pronated. So like that, right? So the hip goes out a little, foot can go in a little, like the mm -hmm. whole thing. And I'm like, that was new for me this year. Hmm. So back to your point of straight leg and what would I what would I add in? Hmm. That was that is another one. If I hang down and I often hang down, I don't just hang down and feel like I used to. I, I take a little more time, breathe through it, hmm. and yeah, feel the change that happens up and down the chain. So yeah, that was another thing. Deep squats, of course. Yes, but not just one deep squat. Every deep squat <laughs> in any way you want. Wide stance, narrow stance. Weight on one leg, one weight on the other. Just one leg, just the other. A little hip motion maybe. Yeah. Just play like a kid on the ground and get yourself on and off the ground more often. Not never. Your feet on varied terrain and, and rocky terrain. And yeah. that is for, it's just for everyone. It's, it, we are on flat ground is doing our brain and our core and our um, nervous system and our foot mobility, which affects everything else. No good. So flat floors, I mean, all day. So, and, you know, I've seen anything like that, just our, our one rock in your front yard, one rock in your home, standing on it for any amount of time. Like we could go into so many, like, there's no reason not to have your foot on some sort of something and all at any point in the day for, for a healthy amount of time doing something else that you're doing, talking on the phone, having a conversation, who knows what, but how much we want to talk about that, but put yeah. the foot need to, needs mm -hmm. to not just stand, even walk. And you could make it really simple. That's another little crossroads into, you know, frequently I'm talking to my clients about when I'm working with them on bike fit and I see limitations in their own movement, range of movement, or their ability to stabilize feet and ankles, you know, in cycling, we have that, that carbon fiber flipper that we use to generate force and push into the pedal. And that's kind of part of the sport. And that makes our feet and ankles weak chronically. And so when I'm explaining that to clients, what I'm talking about is actionable ways for them to have an impact on that. And so first we'll have a conversation about their footwear they're using. And if they're using really big, you know, stiff footwear with a thick sole and a lot of toe drop and, and those types of things, then I'll say, okay, let's maybe consider graduating to something that's a little less structured, gives you a little more freedom, gives the foot a little more freedom, but also we don't want to blindly do that. I don't want to have you just start clomping around in your your socks or your minimal shoes, however you want to phrase it, we want to have some consciousness to what you're doing. We want to have consciousness of your foot posture. What are we working towards? We're not just taking away the structure of the shoe you've been wearing for 15 or 20 years or 50 years. We're, we're also engaging that foot as a tripod. What does that mean? How do you want your weight to be distributed and carried through the ankle and foot as a structure? How are we improving that structure? So I try to plant seeds on that topic with people and then I also point out, okay, what? how does that become actionable in daily life? Well, okay, yeah, if you're used to wearing giant hiking boots all the time or someone told you 20 years ago that you have to wear an orthotic in your shoe every single place you go and everything you do and you've got footbeds in all your shoes now, okay, then let's talk about how to progress the foot and make it stronger from there. And one way is to simply walk through your kitchen barefoot, which is going to be a big step forward for someone who's in that orthotic hiking boot paradigm. Do you have a dog? Do you walk your dog every day? Start to walk your dog in less shoes, right? Maybe depending on what the client, where they're coming from, how weak their ankles and feet are, 
And also their injury history. You know, do you have an injury of plantar fasciitis? Do you have an injury of ankle stuff or a history? Do you have a history of a lot of sprained ankles and strained ankles? Did you used to be a runner, but you stopped because you couldn't keep your ankles attached to your body properly or healthy? Okay, then we have to consider all that context, obviously. That's part of the coaching paradigm. But we ask them to start to investigate walking through the world with that minimal footwear consider walking outside barefoot. The rules I give are, okay, there are no rules other than don't burn, freeze, or puncture your feet. Mm-hmm. Other than that, go for it oh, and watch out for dog shit. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're walking in a park, a lot of landmines out there. Okay, fair enough. But as we do that, start to explore those minimal paradigms or start to push towards that so that your foot can be a strong, stable surface. Because if you can't interact with the earth, that's got to be one of the things on our list, right? Is being able to interact in the earth. And I heard a great podcast several months ago that really illuminated this simple concept for me very clearly. And it was that anytime we use a prosthetic device, we are weakening the body. Example, let's say you have a friend who gets an offender better and they get whiplash and they go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, you've got to wear a neck brace for three months. Okay. Pop quiz. When you take the neck brace off after three months, are the neck muscles weaker or stronger? They're obviously weaker, right? Because the, the brace did the work of supporting the skull for the muscles. So we take off the brace and now your neck's super weak and we have to retrain it. Okay. Medically necessary in this case, because we want to protect someone's spinal cord, you know, in our example. But what I think is illuminative for some people in this concept is to explain to them that a cycling shoe is a prosthetic device. It is a rigid carbon lever in most cases or nylon, whatever. And that serves a purpose in the sport to turn the foot into a lever, but it comes at a cost. And the cost is your feet and ankles get weaker. And when we add an orthotic to that, we are supporting the foot. Now, an orthotic can have two purposes in my mind. One can be proprioceptive. The other can be mechanically stabilizing. So especially in the case of using a mechanically stabilizing footbed, a rigid footbed, thermoplastic or even carbon fiber, which is something I've used for many years of my cycling career with a lot of posting in the Mm -hmm. forefoot. And Aaron Anderson, the guy who makes my footbeds told me point blank, you need this. Your ligaments are so lax in your foot. You're never going to have the foot strength to deal without this. And okay. So I've been chipping away at that and trying to make progress and make my feet healthier and stronger. And this is part of my project to make my body take the strength I got from cycling, which was a lot of strength and perseverance and durability and endurance and all those things, but also expand on that. But when I see clients who are riding only, I had a client just the other day. I said, what's your form of exercise right now? What are you doing besides the bike? He said, 99.9% of all my movement is on the bike. I said, what are you doing the rest of the time? He travels a fair amount. He's a rep. So he's on his feet a fair amount, but that's a man. If, if sitting is the new smoking, well, I got bad news for you. Cycling is just more sitting. Granted, it's got some lunging in it and a little bit of thoracic movement and some pulling and some other stuff. It's not completely passive, obviously, but it's still fundamentally more sitting. So what are the consequences of that? And what are the consequences of using these prosthetic devices? And one of them is weak feet and ankles. That's a whole separate ballgame. Do your sport, wear your Mm -hmm. shoes. Like that's one way to look at it, right? I get it. Like it's just is what it is. You want to do it. Totally not separate and could help. I think like you know, the sport and those shoes is not going to help you do this health thing, but the health is going to help you do that, that yes. sport thing. Yes. It's and a subset, so, right? Like a Venn diagram. Right. 
global foot health, global ankle stability and strength is going to benefit any subset of sport that we choose. Can you imagine if your commute, which I saw in, in Costa Rica, 40 minutes to the next village where the guys would come into, into our uh, permaculture farm and for 40 minutes. And I try, I'm a, I walk because I know what I'm about to tell you. I've known this about walking for quite a while and how nutritious it is and how it actually gives us not necessarily oh, glute activation, therefore a little bit of strength, not all the strength in the world, but still everything works the right way. Hamstring length, I can talk to you all about it. Foot mobility, toe mobility. If you take long strides, I was, I couldn't keep up with this guy, but he did this walk to and from 40 minutes on the beach every day. Mm. And he was just walking. Like it didn't look like he was stressed or walking. No. Boom. He wasn't speed walking. <laughs> no, he wasn't. Also when you're wiggling those hips. Right. No. No, he was just walking. And so um, I have realized over the last years studying feet, also hearing from Dr. Emily Splickle will tell you the same thing. She's the barefoot-focused podiatrist out of New York who does amazing things, barefoot strong. So she also has, you know, tuned in on this and, and she, she has great information out there. But I will tell you that how nutritious of a movement walking is to deny that it is part of this aspect that would keep us a whole human, um, you know, because in the end, you're not just, we weren't necessarily having to run, but definitely walk to live life. You might run away from something, an animal, right? You still might want to run at some point, but walking is more of this basic fundamental thing. And I will say absolutely running is too, but let's look at walking first. Nutritious walking stride, pretty easy to think about. Think about you're nice and tall. You have a deep breath in. You're just like, think about your mindset too. You're happily walking along. And if you do this full stride, it would mean that you aren't just, you actually do come up at 90 degrees on in your big toe. That's a big range of motion that most shoes don't allow for, right? You're triangulating and you're actually pushing that hip out. And I got really rigid in a hip once, this left one, where I couldn't do that. Like I couldn't from my you know, your pelvic bone down to my femoral head, right? Down to then the knee. Like I couldn't push. It sounds crazy, but I couldn't push that femoral head out to the side. It was, it was stuck there and it, it just wouldn't push out. And, and now it does. But the other one could because of other reasons I could go into. So in walking, so you're triangulating, you're already having a lot more fluidity that way. As far as forward and back, I don't know what order I'm going to say this in, but forward and back. If you take a full stride out, two things are happening. You've come up on in the back, your big toe. So now you've, you've, you're on your big toe. It's at 90. They talk about that subtle point where you're like, you fall into your next step, but you've taken a long stride, which hits in the center where part of your, your heel way out there. So you're nice and tall. You've pushed a full stride out to your 90 degrees in the back and you hit your heel like way out there. If you're at that moment, if you can imagine your legs are now like, you know, one out, one's out front, one's out back. And you've done it that way. Your hip flex, your whole hip flexor is open. Mm -hmm. Your glutes activated out the back, pushing off of that big toe. Mm -hmm. um, very fluidly, all these things are happening, but it's happening. You can actually take a big stride that is, doesn't look like a huh, huh, huh. It can actually just be this strong flow that you can feel your glute activating every stride and the person next to you will never know it. Put it this way. Even if my foot was locked down, it would make it harder to do all that I said, but I would still get all those things done if someone told me, you have to wear these locked down shoes. I would still somehow find a way to get those wide strides. It wouldn't be as graceful, I guess, is the point. Talking about walking and talking about the foot and the dorsiflexion of the toe, which just in case you want to remember, 
If you can't remember the difference between dorsiflexion and plantar flexion, just think of a dorsal fin on a shark, which sticks up at the top. Think about jaws. And that's what happens when you dorsiflex a toe. It's pointing up like that fin on the back. I like to give that perspective for my clients or listeners. So when we're talking about that push-off phase and that dorsiflexion of the toe, and then the subsequent activation of the glute and, and extension of the hip, which means if you were standing perfectly bolt upright, extension of the hip would be pushing the knee behind your butt. That would be extension of the hip, right? Just so everyone is on the same anatomical landmark page. What I see com very commonly, and I don't want to make a sweeping statement like this is the root of all dysfunction, but I will say I see really commonly in bike fitting a basically what is a manifestation of a Trendelenburg's syndrome on the bike. What is a Trendelenburg? Well, okay, so you were just talking, Jesse, about how we want a certain amount of bobbleheadedness to our joints, to our hips, to flow and sway side to side uh, in different planes of movement during walking to accommodate that dorsiflexion of the toes so that your head isn't moving up and down. It may be moving up and down somewhat, but maybe that's indicative of some rigidity in the body. So when we translate someone into a bike and we have them pedal, which if you've heard my podcast on how to pedal a bike 101 and 102, where I actually talk about how to pedal bike for four hours, which is pretty astounding. Hashtag bike dork. You really, what we're doing is we're putting someone in forward flexion and then we're, we're basically modifying the gait pattern, in my opinion, neurologically to sculpt it or refine it into what is pedaling motion. And so I see what I believe is basically a Trendelenburg manifesting on the bike all the time. And when you see that, when I film the rider from a posterior view, which basically means I film butts for a living, I watch someone's hips. And if you track either the iliac crest, which is the top of, we'll say the hip bone or the SI joint, either one, what you see is fundamentally on one side, that marker will trace the path of the foot on the same side. So as the right foot, for example, goes if the crank's starting at 12 o'clock or, or vertical, as the right foot pushes down and forward and goes through the clock phase, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock to where the crank is horizontal, the right iliac crest or top of the hip bone will move forward with that foot. And then at the bottom of the stroke, as the foot traces down four, five, six to the bottom of our clock, and now the crank is vertical pointing down, then the hip drops down and forward. So fundamentally, what happens is the hip on one side more than the other will trace the path of the foot. And so we could, we can look at this as one of two different things. One you could say is that high, that hip is too mobile or the other is that hip is too mobile or correspondingly the, the contralateral hip is too tight or it's a neurological movement pattern, right? Because we all have hemispheric dominance in our movement patterns, especially in walking. It's just a question of how strongly they manifest. But fundamentally, a trend, okay, to rewind for a second, a Trendelenburg is when you walk someone walk, when you watch someone walking or film them walking, again from the posterior view and or running, when their weight is supported, for example, on the left leg, the right hip dumps. So the right hip drops down. And that the really armchair diagnosis, 50,000 foot view, is that the 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 stabilizers of the hip on the left side don't have the strength to keep the right side from dumping. And we can also see this manifest in lunges, or if you really want to see it happen quickly, 
make a cyclist do a split span, split stance kettlebell deadlift. So a split stance means you're going to take one step forward with the forward foot. Then you're going to put the kettlebell next to the outside ankle of that forward foot. And then you're going to lift the kettlebell with only one hand and try to press up into a standing posture. So hence a deadlift without rotation of the hips or the sternum relative to that plane. And this is, this is really, in my opinion, probably one of the closest exercises we can do that directly translates to what cycling is. When you stand up on a hill and you pull on the bars and you push down on the pedal, that is a split stance deadlift, basically a one arm dead, a suitcase deadlift, we might call it suitcase, meaning it, it designates that only one arm is doing the pulling, not both. And how stable can you keep your hips under that load, right? This is the essence of strength to cycling. And, and it's also the manifestation of that Trendelenburg is when that hip dumps under load and you can't keep it from, from dropping down below the, the level of the, the active hip, we'll say. I was doing it with one leg and yeah. So, wow, that was one of my original aha moments when I started to do kind of training like that as a triathlete, which changed my life at Exos. Are you in ipsilateral, contralateral? Uh, Well, same hand. Yeah. 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 I would recommend ipsilateral for most of those because when you're, when you're climbing or sprinting most of the time, what are you trying to do? You're making a force vector we'll say around one or two or three o'clock with the active leg pushing down, you want to pull back with the ipsilateral or same side arm to counter that force, assuming you have the core strength to transmit the force lines between those two, those two distal segments, the hand and the foot that are generating all that force. So we have to, that's, this is like why core is so important and having a cohesive line of strength and tension a global tension between all those systems, right? So you see it all the time in beginning cyclists. And I hate to pick on young women in this case, but I will, because it's an example we've probably all can identify with, but maybe didn't understand what we were seeing. Take the archetype of a really strong high school runner, a, a girl, and then she discovers cycling, goes through her college years, and then starts to ride a bike. And she's got this massive aerobic engine, but doesn't have maybe the global strength and conditioning to deal with those forces. And she's climbing a steep hill and you can see the hip will, she'll push down hard on that hip and she doesn't have the core strength to control the hip. So the hip, what happens is it pushes up and then the shoulder pulls down and you get this kind of twisting of the pelvis or of the, the whole core, really the body the and the shoulders and hips come out of plane from each other, those control centers. Right. And that's a function of, it's a classic example of an athlete having, you know, a disbalance between two things. One, the strength of their aerobic system relative to their muscular system, but also two specific aspects of their muscular system, namely the strength of the arm and shoulder and the the control center of the hip down to the foot, but no connection in between, right? And so we have to learn how to keep those shoulders and planes, the hips in plane. And this is, I mean, I'm picking on our hypothetical archetype of a 16-year-old woman girl to to illustrate this, but when you start to see it, and you learned what to look for, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's in the most elite level of cycling. Have the same experience. I watched my body. I have to send you the photos of me before and after. Mm. So I have to, it was on running for me, of course, cycling as well was a part of it. Different things happened in my, my movement on the bike. But the running, wow, just no one even thinks it's the same person, right? So right. I have had this experience where a single, you know, catch me on one leg and running and I was just one hip up, shoulders down. Yep. Uh, and then this, when I, you know, after that year of, or 
really quickly within that year of, of training um, with these other movements. And for sure, one of my gold standard movements was always my, I will say contralateral, but I don't think it matters. I think all those deadlifts, those straight-legged deadlifts, um, yep. Romanian deadlifts, I would call them. Mm-hmm personally. Uh, so whether it be ipsilateral on one leg, contralateral, meaning the weight on either side of the foot that's down, yep. and then also, or two, two, two arms, two legs, or yep. one leg, two arms. So yep. two arms, one leg, right? So then you can have a lot more weight on mm-hmm. there and on and on and on. So all of those I think are great, but to your point of why it would relate in that way, um, contralateral I would use because it made so much sense. They put me in that same, like, imagine weight in my right hand, my, my left foot down. Yeah. And deadlifting. Yep. Is it deadlifting or just a, yeah, a Romanian deadlift. Yes. On one leg, one arm, one leg. And when I would lift up, they would actually, one little side note to that, they would put me in the position of leg down in like a T. So like my body, my leg, my foot was on the ground. Weight was in my right hand and my body was horizontal to the ground. Yes. Okay. With a knee slightly bent on the leg that was down. And they were asking me actually to to do do a a row. row. Yeah. And when they said, but keep everything else straight and strong. Yep. And I said, in that first week or two of that type of training, I said, I need all my energy just to maintain this stability. You want me to move my arm now? Right. Yes. Right. And that was my first steps. That was like that aha moment of like, I can't even keep this straight. And you want, and I want to do stuff with my arms and my legs. I need, mm-hmm. to, that's how I get from point A to point B and win my races. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, with that load, keep that on there. Isn't that so interesting? That, yeah, that was yeah. amazing. You're taking me way back to the beauty of that, those mm-hmm. moments of life changing. Yeah. And back to that, then the contralateral um, up and down. So the RDL contralateral where the, the weight was in the other hand. And the, as I went up from... 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, I got up to 70 pounds Nice. where I could maintain. And that was a lot in my frame, 120 pounds, 20, 125, whatever it was. Yeah. But to, yeah, just to be hinge without a sh- shade of that hip. Of that hip or rib, rib cage r- r- twisting, twisting, right? Not or the shoulder dumping yeah. and going into protraction. No, nothing. Just a, just a yeah. machine, just yeah. up and down. And wow. So to relate that back to the bike, and I don't know if you're here for me to like either justify what you're saying, because I'm on all the things on board or how it relates. But I will say that uh, talking about that list of movements, if we were to do a pure one like mm-hmm. that, I could go into pure gold standards that I had like in the gym stuff, you know, versus like these days I'm playing a little around with the movement more. And I will wrap it back up to, to yeah. these days. But I did want to say, in my Olympic trials, um, it was April 2016, and January was when I started this training. From I did tell the story the last time, so I won't go into it. But I had actually quit the sport like weeks before that, at the end of 2003, because my body wasn't working. Thankfully, I was. I they took me under their wing at, at Athletes Performance Exos, and I was doing movements like this. Mm-hmm. The the one of the hills, there was a hill in this Olympic trials, which was a gnarly, you know, a good solid two minutes of a super steep climb out of your saddle as soon as you hit it and just like go up. And I can't tell you, it was the first time where I was in the pack because it was pack racing just for a triathlon. And I came up the hill as soon as I hit it, I just stood up and I said, my whole, in my mind was push through the glute, push through the glute, push through the glute. And I was in a pack and I was strong on the bike usually, but man, I just didn't see anything else but the top of that. My face was relaxed. There's a great photo of it that like captures what I'm talking about and how it all came together. Mm. But like, I'm just up at the top of the hill, like totally relaxed because I tell an example of this, but I couldn't push any harder Mm. and nothing hurt. I felt no pain. I felt no effort. I was doing everything I can. And that was like, I was just doing what I, everything I had. And it was perfect to get to the top. Mm. And the picture shows the girls behind on the bike. 
tweaked of the arms, the shoulders, this, the face. Yeah. All the pain faces. And I was ahead of the pack and they were just, they were behind for that moment, you know? And, um, yeah. So it goes to show this, like, that's the part of the machine or the roboticness that I would say that type of training when you're really focused on a sport thing, um, works in that way for sure. And same with thing with running the single, the, the, the sing two arm, one leg deadlift for running is out of this world and the plyometrics that come with it and all that. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) This has been amazing. I'm so grateful that you came to Boulder. Yes, me too. And that you reached out and we had the time to come in and connect on the pod and we got to hear all the amazing things that go through your mind. Yeah, I love the free flow with you. Yeah. It's it's great. You're doing such a great job with the podcast and uh, glad I could be here. Thank you. Hey. Attention, Space Monkeys, public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor. So don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet. Also, we talk about lots of things, and that means we have opinions. My guests' opinions are not necessarily reflective of the opinions of anyone who is employed by or works at Fast Talk Labs. Also, if you want to reach out and talk to me about things, feedback on the podcast, good, bad, or otherwise, you may do so at the following email address, info at cyclinginalignment.com. That's all spelled just like it sounds, which again is self-evident. Gratitude.